Now, friends, we come to this section that I've already told you is the new major division in Galatians. We've had three major divisions after the introduction. There was that personal section so important in the life of the Apostle Paul for us to know, the experience that he had had. And then we came to the doctrinal section of justification by faith, that our salvation must rest upon God's salvation, and that there's only one gospel. And he's going to make it clear in this fifth chapter that that gospel only permits one way. He is the way. And there's none other name under heaven given among man whereby we must be saved. Now, we concluded the doctrinal section last time. We come today to the practical side, and that is sanctification by the Spirit. Justification is by faith. Sanctification is by the Spirit of God. Now, we are told, however, that the Lord Jesus Christ has been made unto a sanctification. That is, God sees us complete in him. Now, I don't care how good you become. You'll never meet his standard. You'll never be like Christ in this life. And Christ is the only one that God's ever said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I'm very frank to say that he's the only one God could say that of. But now we've been put in Christ. The body of believers, this church, is in Christ. He's the head of the body. And this is his body that's in the world. should represent him, by the way. Now, the method today of sanctification is by the Spirit. And we have in this section, we'll see the Spirit versus the flesh. Either it's a do-it-yourself Christian life, or somebody else will have to do it through you. And his method is doing it through you. And we have here liberty versus bondage. Now, any legal system puts you under bondage. You have to follow it meticulously. The officer, the traffic officer, and I'm getting allergic to using that illustration because I get letters from people that they think I'm an awful lawbreaker. But I did. I came up to a corner. It was actually early a Sunday morning. Nobody was out. I looked up and down the street, and when I came up to the corner, I didn't stop. Now, the sign there said stop. I just crawled through. And I didn't see that officer. He came up to me. He says, did you see the sign? I said, yes, I saw the sign. I just didn't see you. Well, he says, you know what that sign means? Well, he gave me a lesson there. I would say a very primitive, but a very primary lesson. He says, stop means stop. You know, I already knew that. I just wasn't doing it. I just crawled through. I couldn't see anything wrong with that. You see, the law, I tell you, it puts you in bondage. And I think today that if you're going to drive, you better be under law because a lot of folk drive through those stop signs have caused wrecks, you know. And stop means stop. Well, I agreed with him on everything except the one thing is that I deserved a ticket. I argued with him about that. And you know, he was a very nice fellow. He saw the point. He said, well, I grant you this morning that there's nobody out. But he says, hereafter, he says, you stop, will you? And I assured him I'd stop. And you want to know something? If it's early Sunday morning now and I come to that corner, I stop. And wherever that stop sign is. Now, that's legalism, if you please. 
Now, Paul begins on this note of liberty that we have in Christ. And in these first 15 verses here, in chapter 5, his subject is saved by faith and living by law perpetrates falling from grace. That's what it means to fall from grace, is to be saved by faith and then drop down to a law level to live. And I will see that illustrated as we move into this section. Now I'm reading at verse 1, chapter 5 of Galatians. "...stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage." Now, what he's saying here is that we're not only saved by faith, but the law is not the rule of life or of faith for the believer. This is not the way that we are to live by law at all. Because if law enters in, you see, or we are to do something, actually that's what it means to say Christ is a curse. That's the reason that it's dangerous today, friends. I've had several letters that when we spoke on the matter of the gifts of the Spirit, they said, why, you're a heretic because you deny this. And may I say to you, I deny that you do anything to add to your salvation. When you come to Christ, you get the whole ball of wax. It's in Christ that we have everything, friends. And it's only through him that you and I have salvation and also sanctification, as we're going to see here. And we have a liberty in Christ. We're not put under some little legal system. Now, I know a great many fundamentalists today. They've got rid of the Ten Commandments. I mean, by that, they don't use them as a law of life because I think we all understand that the breaking most of those commandments today, you'd be arrested by the local authorities. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. And certainly a Christian doesn't do that, but we've been called to a higher level to live. And that level is where there's liberty in Christ. I have a liberty in Jesus Christ. And that liberty is that the rule I'm to live by, which is not a rule, but a principle, and that is I'm to please him. My conduct should be to please Jesus Christ, not please you, not please any organization, but to please Jesus Christ. And that's the liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, circumcision was the badge of the law. And if you so much as put on the badge, and a badge indicates what organization that you belong to. Most lodges and organizations today, they have badges that you're to wear. I'm of the opinion that it'd be nice if Christians wore a badge. I've never been much on wearing badges. I go to conventions. I try to steer clear of the table where they put a badge on you. I just don't like wearing badges. But I'm not sure but what Christians should have a badge, because that's about the only way they can tell we're Christians most of the time is by the badge that we would wear. But Paul says, if you so much as put on the badge of the law, which is circumcision, he says, actually, Christ does not profit you anything. If you are looking to anything else other than Christ, 
Now, I hope you can see the reason for that, and there's a good, sound, logical reason. And let me illustrate with a very homely illustration. Years ago in my Southland, there was a tonic that was advertised that was named Hadicol, I think was the name of it. And I think it was put off the market. I do not know all the details, but I think they found about 75% of it was alcohol. And a lot of people were using it, by the way. And I knew a lot of Christian people that said, my, it certainly helped you, makes you feel good. And 75% alcohol would have that effect, I'm sure. And so they were taking had a call. Now, suppose that you wrote a testimonial. You had taken had a call, and you write a testimonial to the people. And they were great at giving out testimonials. And the testimonial would read something like this. You would say, I took 513 bottles of your medicine. And before I took the medicine, I could not walk. And now... I'm able to run, and I'm actually able to fly. I really have been improved. But also during that time, I made up a bottle of my own concoction, my own medicine, and I took that bottle also. I think you ought to know that. Now, my friend, you sure muddied the water. You can't tell now whether the 513 bottles of Hadicol is the thing that cured you, or whether it was your own bottle, of that concoction that you had made up. You see, the minute you put something else in, you're not quite sure. And so if it's Christ plus something, then Paul goes so far as to say this. Now, will you hear me very carefully today? Paul says, if you go so far as to be circumcised, are to add, that's just the badge of the law. If you go so far as to say that you have done something or that you went through some experience and that that is your salvation, he says you're really not saved because Christ won't profit you anything. How can he profit you anything? Because you made up a bottle of your own concoction and you did not trust him alone for your salvation. Dr. Schaefer used to put it like this, and it always impressed me. He said, I want to so trust Christ that if someday when I come into his presence, he would say to me, why are you here? And I'd say, I trusted you as my Savior. And he'd say, well, that's rather commendable, and I'm very happy you did that. But what have you done? Well, he said, I haven't done anything. Well, he says, no, I happen to know that you were president of a seminary. Don't you want to mention that? He said, no, I never trusted that for salvation. Well, you were baptized, I know. Yes, but I never trusted that for salvation. Well, you were a member of a church. Yes, but I never trusted that for salvation. But you did many nice, fine things that you were commended for. Yes, but I never trusted that. And the Lord Jesus would say, well, I'm sorry, I can't receive you. And... He says, I want to so trust Christ that I'd say to him, I'm sorry. And I'd turn and walk away and say, I only trusted you as my Savior. My friend, is that the way you and I are trusting him today? Is that the way that we're resting on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior? Paul makes it very strong. Don't blame me for it. Paul says, 
Behold, I, Paul, send you, not I, Vernon McGee. Now, this is not Vernon McGee's interpretation. This is Paul. I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. That is, if you trust the badge even, if you trust the law, if you trust anything other than Christ, you're not a Christian. Now, that's Paul. I didn't say it, friends, so don't blame me for it. Just tell me what he means if this is not what he means here. And I'd like to know if he means something else, why he didn't say something else. This is what he says. He says, verse 3 now, For I testify again to every man that's circumcised that he's debtor to do the whole law. You see, you can't just draw out of the law what you like, and especially they like to leave out the penalties and a great deal of the detail. I'm delighted today that I'm not under law. I'm not under law at all. And the liberty that I have in Christ. Now, I must confess I have a problem of pleasing him always. I'm sure that my conduct always doesn't please him, but he's the one I'm trying to please. It's not following some legal system. Now he says, For I testify again to every man that's circumcised. He's debtor to do the whole law. Now listen to him. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. Now what he's saying is this, that if you, having been saved by trusting Christ, if you now are coming down to a low level and living by law, then he says you've fallen from grace. And that's what falling from grace actually means. It, I think, is something that is greatly misunderstood today. I can remember when I was a student in a denominational seminary, why one theologian, he says that falling from grace is the doctrine which the Methodists believe and the Presbyterians practice. Well, I'm sure that most of them practice it today. Actually, it doesn't mean falling into some open sin or careless conduct, and by so doing that you forfeit your salvation and you have to be saved all over again. It has no reference to that, of course, at all. Falling from grace is, I think, opposite of once saved, always saved. I think both expressions are unfortunate terminology. Well, falling from grace is, Paul answers it now in the rest of this chapter. He answers it in Romans. Paul in Romans begins with man in the place of total bankruptcy, no righteousness, completely depraved, unprofitable, rotten fruit, if you please. Man is a sinner before God. Now, at the conclusion of Romans, you see man in the service of God. He's asked to do certain things. He's admonished to perform certain things. And he's completely separated to God. He must be obedient to God. Man is a servant of God. Now, there are two mighty works of God stand between the man in his fallen condition and man in service to God. What are those? Salvation and sanctification. Now, salvation is justification by faith, as we've seen. And that is something that's all important. Now, sanctification means now that you're saved. It doesn't mean get busy. It means simply this that you are now coming up to a new plane of living. You are now been saved. I think the greatest fallacy of the Christian life is today 
that service is essential, that you must get busy immediately. You know, the early church was more concerned with its life, the life of the church, and that life was a witness to the world. And today we've forgotten that. The outside world is looking at the church and passing it by, and looking at many of us believers and passing us by. Why? Because, very frankly, we are always busy out yonder handing out tracts, buttoning old people, and we don't have a life to back it up. We need today a life to back that up and to know by experience these things. And rather than trying to do good, we ought to live good. And then if we are, then we're going to be doing good, if you please. I think there's more about sanctification in the epistle to the Romans and in the epistle to the Galatians than anything else. Now, how does God make a saved sinner good? Well, he's given a new nature. Now he can keep the law? Oh, no. Emphatically, no. He's called now to a higher plane. Now, this doesn't mean he breaks the law, but he's called to a higher plane. There's no good in the old nature. And Paul found that out. And he also found out there's no power in the new nature. He said, as to salvation, I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But he also found out in Romans, to will is present with me. And he cries out, as a saved man, O wretched man that I am, he's not afraid that he's going to lose his salvation. He's a defeated Christian. And God gives a new principle. And the new principle we're going to find here in this chapter is the fruit of the Spirit. Living the Christian life by this method for some Christians is as far-fetched as living on the moon. Never expect to live there. Never heard about it. Acknowledge the possibility. It's a theory. And I'm just talking here about life out yonder on a distant planet. May I say to you, this is the life he wants us to live by faith today. Saved by grace, we're to live by grace We'll take that up next time. Now, friends, today we come back here to this very important fifth chapter at verse 5. And I remind you again, we're in the section of sanctification by the Spirit. We're in the very wonderful section where we are told now how we are to live as believers. And he gives us, in this section, the modus operandi. But first of all, he shows that saved by faith and living by law perpetuates falling from grace. Now, will you notice, as we move down into this chapter, he continues this thought. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, as we're in this section here, the hope of faith, actually, that he mentions here, is the only prophetic reference in the entire epistle. That's quite remarkable, because in all of Paul's epistles, he has something to say about the rapture of the church, or something to say about coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. But all he says here is the hope of righteousness by faith. And that is one of the reasons I'm confident that Martin Luther and the Reformers spent so little time on prophecy. After all, they did not live in days 
as we're living in today. They had a different concern. And to them, the big issue was the matter of salvation, because salvation had been clouded under a great deal of ritual and a great deal of works of the flesh. And the gospel actually was being fogged out. And when Martin Luther came to the epistle to the Galatians and discovered what the gospel was, why, this man rose from his knees on Sanctus scale and went out to the world to declare the gospel of the grace of God. He drove back the darkness of the dark ages when he did that. So that the emphasis actually was not on the soon coming of Christ. And the idea today that all of the schools of prophecy, and it's been true that the premillennialists, the amillennialists, the postmillennialists have all quoted Martin Luther and the Reformers. And I think very candidly all of them are wrong. I do not think that you have any development of prophecy beyond what the early church did and until this century. It's been in this century that there's been tremendous development in prophecy. And I very frankly feel that probably the Bible Institutes were the beginning of this, and then two or three of our seminaries today that have emphasized the premillennial position and have taken the premillennial position, and they have forced the others to study prophecy. Now, actually, amillennialism was just the group of the postmillennialists forced into the position of having to study prophecy. And they came up with uh, millennialism, and of course they have been great at quoting the fathers. That is certainly the post-apostolic period. And it's in that period that they dwell a great deal. They say Augustine said this, and Augustine did say it, no question about it. He was attempting to build a church here upon this earth. That is, build a kingdom here. And the church would just bring it in. That led to post-millennialism. That was, of course, a false position. But I don't think you could blame Augustine altogether for that because, again, in his period, they were not attempting to develop prophecy. The person of Christ was a great subject at that time, as salvation was later on, than the work of the Spirit and you and I are living in that day. So I think the very fact that we have only one reference here... And Paul is dealing with the gospel here and the Christian life. And that's primary in this epistle. And I think that we ought to always note what the priorities are in any book of the Bible especially and the priorities that were in existence in any particular period if you're going to quote somebody from that period because you can certainly misinterpret and misunderstand them and I feel like all schools today have made that mistake. They try to go back and quote the fathers. Well, let's read what Paul said, and Peter said, and James said, and Dr. Luke said, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John said. These are the authorities, not the church fathers. They, in their day, did a tremendous work, but in an altogether different area. Now, I make that statement just to pass by this because the hope of righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the reason Paul says this here is 
that you and I are not going to reach perfection down here. And the greatest imperfection that I can think of today is to think that you've reached perfection. Because believe me, those are the people that generally are very imperfect, like the rest of us. Only thing is, they don't see it. Now, we move on here. And in verse 6, "...for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love." Now, no legal apparatus will produce a Christian life. The formula is given right here. It's a simple simile. So simple that it passes by the theologians. Faith which worketh by love. That's it. That's the formula that's given to us here. Now, he is going to give us, as we advance here, the modus operandi. But let's keep before us here that it's a very simple formula, faith which worketh by love. That is the way to live the Christian life. And faith will work by love, you see. And love will be the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And he says, verse 7, "...ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth?" What he's saying here is this. He's rather, I think, chiding the Galatians. He's more or less giving them a gentle rebuke. He says, "...you were doing excellently as living by faith until the Judaizers came along, and now you've fallen on your nose again." Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? And obey the truth is the truth of the gospel, of course, and the Lord Jesus Christ in person. Now, verse 8, This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. In other words, this is not something that comes from Christ. This comes from another source. And then he says, verse 9, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And as we have here, it's very clear that leaven is a principle of evil. And let me add to that, that as far as I know, that all the way through the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, that leaven is always a principle of evil. It was given that way. And when it says a woman took three measures of meal and hid leaven in it, my friend, the Leaven is not the gospel. It may be the kind of a gospel that's passing abroad today as legal tender, but that's evil. In fact, Paul says that's no gospel at all. And the thing is that leaven is a principle of evil. The Lord Jesus warned his apostles of the leaven of the Pharisees. And I think we need to be warned today of the leaven today of legalism. And it is an awful thing, I believe. Actually, that's what it means to call Christ a curse, is to say that when he died on the cross for me 1,900 years ago, he didn't give me a full package of salvation, that I have to go to the Holy Spirit to get something else, and I'll have to have an experience and seek something to get the rest of it. My friend, I've got it all in Christ. Now, I may have experiences after that, but they'll always have to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that has wrought out our salvation. And Paul warns of this kind of leaven that is an evil thing. And the Lord Jesus said that the woman would take leaven and hide it in the gospel. And I believe that's what's happened today, that 
we have a leavened gospel. And that means the bread or the dough is the word of God and the gospel. And into that has been hidden leaven. And it makes bread palatable. I was brought up in the South. I never knew there was but one kind of biscuit, and that was a hot biscuit. And I never ate a cold one. My mother used to bake every day. I can even now see those biscuits on the back of the stove, and they're dough, and she's letting them rise. And when they got a certain height, she stuck them in the oven. They had leaven in them. And my, I tell you, put butter in them and a little honey on them, and there's just nothing any better than that. That's still the best dessert I know anything about today. You see, there's a lot of leaven being put in the gospel today to make it palatable to people. Because a natural man, he likes the leavened bread. It tastes good to us. And the gospel has to be a little leavened today to make it palatable. And we're warned not to do that. Now he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he is. Now, Paul here believed that the Galatians would ultimately reject, I think, the teaching of the Judaizers. He says, I have confidence in you that when you get your feet back down on the ground and your head out of the clouds and you begin to go back to the gospel that was preached to you, you'll see that this is an intrusion, that this is leaven that's been put in. Verse 11, and he says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. Now, this is, I believe, a very important thing to note here. He says, If I preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? You see, the preaching of something to add to the gospel makes it acceptable. The gospel by itself. It's not acceptable to the natural man. I've had any number of people that have told me, and I think that's been the value of radio, that you can tune me out right now. Any of you can just turn the button and you're through with me. I know that. I recognize that. But I'm not trimming the message down because I know something else. That there are a lot of people that will say, well, wait a minute, I can tune him out anytime. And I don't like what he's saying, that I can't work at my salvation that he's saying my religion doesn't do me any good, and I'd like to punch him in the nose. Now, I have a man, I played golf with him some. He's a great big fella, and he belonged to a religion. And he said that when I began to listen to you, he said, if I could have got to you, he said, I would have punched you in the nose. You kept telling me I was a sinner, and I was as religious as I could be. And I was in church practically every day. And I said to him, why didn't you just tune me out? And you'd been through it. He said, I just want to see what you're going to say next, because it all sounds crazy to me. Well, keep listening, friend. Maybe the Spirit of God will do what he did for that fellow. It'll make Jesus Christ real to you. And when he becomes real to you, as he did to this man, and he came to the Lord Jesus, and he had a wonderful conversion. I say to you today that preaching the gospel does antagonize people. And Paul says, if I'm including something in the gospel... Why am I being persecuted? And then he says, the offense of the cross sees. Now, what is the offense of the cross? Well, the offense of the cross is not an intellectual offense, although it is that to some. And it's not an aesthetic offense, although it is that to some people. 
The thing that he says here is, the offense of the cross is that it makes you and me a beggar. And we have to come to the front door of heaven and accept a handout. And that's the only way you will ever get saved, my brother. I had to come like that. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And when you come like that, you're a beggar. You're bankrupt. You haven't anything to offer God for your salvation. And when you come like that to him, you can be saved, friends. You see, actually here, the cross of Christ is an offense to all that man prides himself in. It's offensive to his morality because it tells him his works cannot justify him. It's offense to his philosophy because its appeal is to faith and not to reason. It's an offense to the culture because its truths are revealed to babes. It's an offense to his sense of caste because God chooses the poor and humble. It's an offense to his will because it calls for an unconditional surrender. It's an offense to his pride because it shows the exceeding sinfulness of the human heart. And it's an offense to himself because it tells me I must be born again. You know, that was, oh, that was almost insulting to that Pharisee Nicodemus that night to tell him, as religious as he was, he must be born again. And that's the reason that a lot of ministers who are preaching the new birth today get in trouble with sometimes some members of the congregation. They don't want to be born again. They feel like they're good enough. It's an insult to you. The cross is an offense, but I don't think we ought to magnify that at all. Now, I had a professor in seminary that said a very wise thing. He said, young gentlemen, do not tone the gospel down. Do not change it, because there is the offense of the cross that today you need to recognize. But he says, don't magnify the offense. Now, I think sometimes the way we give it out we may become offensive. And when we do that, may God forgive us for that, because I'm sure most of us who attempt to declare the gospel do not want to be offensive personally. We'd like very much for the gospel to be that which is offensive. I said to a man that was on my staff at one time, he antagonized a family and caused them to leave the church. And I told him, I said, now look, I'm the one here to antagonize people. You are not to antagonize them. And I said that I want to be very careful and make sure that I'm not personally the one that antagonizes them, but that the gospel I preach, if anything antagonizes them, let that be the thing that antagonizes people. Not you, not me, actually, but the gospel. I think that is what Paul is saying here. Now he goes on to say, I would that they were even cut off, which trouble you. I wish these Judaizers were removed from you. Verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. That's something to remember. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now we have given to us here something that I think is very important. There are three methods of trying to live the Christian life. Two of these methods will not work. One is a life of legalism, as he's been talking about that. That won't work. 
and the other's the life of license. Paul discussed that in Romans. Now that we are saved by grace, does that mean that we can continue in sin? And Paul gives the answer, God forbid, you can't live in sin, be a Christian. Now you may fall into sin, but you're going to get out. The prodigal son can get in the pig pen, but he never lived in the pig pen. That was not his forwarding address. He left it. And therefore, the Christian life is not a life of legalism, and it's not a life of license. What is it? Well, he's discussing it here. It's a life of liberty. Now, Paul will give in the remainder of this chapter the modus operandi of living by liberty. The life of legalism not only includes the Ten Commandments, but a set of regulations that Bible believers follow today. They tell you where you can go, where you can't go. They tell you what you can do and what you cannot do. I remember we had a very wonderful woman who was a Bible teacher in Texas. She came to our town, did a wonderful work teaching the Bible. A dear little saint came up to me one day. She says, do you think she's really a Christian? She uses makeup. Well, who in the world ever said that is a test? And I said, well, that woman, I think, is living under liberty. And she may be using a little too much makeup, but I said, when you get her age, you probably, you know, spread it on a little thicker than you do before. Now, I said, candidly, I don't think it helps her too much, but she has liberty in Christ. Whether you eat meat or don't eat meat, I won't commend you to God. Whether you use makeup or don't use it. And some women do look a little better with it, by the way. And some of them look a little worse for using too much of it. But I'm no authority on that. Now, that's not my business to tell people that. I never would preach on that. Now, notice what he says. They can keep all these things, Paul is saying, and still not live the Christian life. Did you know that you could keep every commandment and you could follow all that the fundamentalists put down for us to live today? You still wouldn't be living the Christian life. We're going to see what that is before we finish with this chapter. There are the antinomians who think they can do as they please and live the Christian life. These are extreme as the legalists. And the Christian life's not either one. It's liberty in Christ. Now, he says here, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. And as we said last time, this is what the gospel of grace does for the believer. What is it? Well, you can't do what you want to do. It is grace, not law, that frees us from doing wrong and allows us to do right. Grace does not set us free to sin, but it sets us free from sin. You see that today the believer should desire to please God, not because he must please him like a slave, but because he's a son and he wills to please his father. He does what God wants, not because he fears to do otherwise like an enemy, but because he wants to do it for God's his friend. God is the one who loves him. And he serves God not because of any pressure from without like the law, but because of a great principle within even the life of Christ that's within us and that we love him. And he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I've often wondered, suppose one of the apostles said, we don't love you. I think he'd have said, forget the commandments then. The whole basis is a love relationship to him. The law, therefore, never could bring us to that place. It was negative to begin with. 
It was a negative goodness. And that's the kind of goodness a great many people have today. And, oh, if I could only get this through to a great many of the saints today. Your negative goodness, friends, is a legal goodness. You can say, I don't do this, I don't do that. But for the name of heaven, what do you do? I know a lot of the saints. I've been pastor. They could get up and say, well, I don't go to a dance, and I don't go to the movies. And they could also say, I don't go to church on Sunday night, and I don't go to church in the midweek service. I know that because it didn't come. My friend, may I say to you that the law only gave a negative goodness, and it never rises to the sphere of positive goodness where one does things to please God for the very love of pleasing Him. He wants us to serve Him on that kind of basis. Now, well, you listen to it here as he's going to reduce it to a simple statement. Then he'll amplify what he means. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. Now, how are we going to get that in our lives, this matter of love? We're now in a very important section, by love serve one another. Now he says, verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The one word, of course, is love. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And here is a verse, verse 15. I've always wanted to preach a sermon on this text. I never did get the sermon up, never did preach it. Probably never will. But I've got a title for it. Listen to the verse first. Here's the text. But if ye bite and devour one another... Take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And my subject would be Christian cannibals. Eat and devour and bite one another. And you know, that's what happened in many churches today. You can get bitten there, by the way, and the bite is as bad as a mad dog. And there's nothing you can take. You can't take any kind of serum for rabies. You just have to suffer under it because there are a lot of mad dogs today. They'll bite you. And they devour you. And unfortunately, the world has passed by the church today. And I'm sorry it has. There are many fine people in our churches, and there's some wonderful preachers throughout this country. But did you know that the life of some Christians are keeping the world outside from attending certain churches? I happen to know that. Why, I happen to know men that have been turned away from the church by the life of those in it. What are they doing? Why, they don't love one another. They bite and devour one another. And I tell you, it's a terrible thing. Now, I want to make a recapitulation and tie it in with what we have gone over before. And Paul began this section now that we're in, and we're no longer in justification by faith. We're now in the practical section not doctrinal, but it's sanctification by the Spirit. And he tells us that we're to stand fast in the liberty wherewith we have been made free, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Now, what is it that Christ has set us free from? Well, there are several things Paul has already mentioned in this epistle. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present 
evil world according to the will of God and our Father. And that's not according to law, but according to the will of God. He wants to deliver us from this present evil world. Now, he has set us free, therefore, that from this present evil world we don't have to serve. And then we are set free from what we are by nature. And over in the second chapter, verse 20, he said, I'm crucified with Christ. That is, that took place 1,900 years ago. Nevertheless, I live. How do I live? Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Now, you can see he says, I live, yet not I. You and I can't live the Christian life, but Christ can live it in us. And what a wonderful liberty we've been brought to today. And he's delivered us not only from what we are by nature, but he's delivered us from the curse of the law. And over in chapter 3, 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So that we've been delivered from any judgment of the law, the condemnation of it. And we've been delivered from the law itself. For in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, all of these things we've been delivered from. And we've been delivered from a system that Israel had over a thousand years. And Peter, yonder in the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, describing it, he says, "...which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear." We weren't able to do that. Now, Christ has delivered us from our fences, and we've been raised in him. And we've been saved that in the ages to come, Paul says in Ephesians, that he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. Now, throughout eternity, we are to be a demonstration to God's created universe of the grace of God. And he will have done it all, or it's not grace, you see. Imagine, out under in eternity, here's the church, and it has on it, all of these are a demonstration of the grace of God, except Vernon McGee, and he went to Sunday school and didn't miss 12, 15 Sundays. And that helps him in his salvation, or he paid his honest debts and something like that. What nonsense, friend. You're going to be there for the demonstration of his grace, and nothing that you and I ever did will enter into it. Now, Paul is going to contrast what it is to live in the desires of the flesh or to walk in the Spirit. And now here is his injunction, and this whole section here will give us the modus operandi. Listen to him in verse 16. This I say, then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Two things need to be said here. One is to walk in the Spirit. The Greek word is peripateo, which was the name of a school of philosophy in Athens. It's where the founder walked up and down. It hadn't anything to do with his philosophy, but he just walked up and down. Now, this is the word. The principle is to walk in the Spirit. 
Now, he'll amplify that. Ye shall not fulfill, not lust in a bad sense. Actually, it just means the desires of the flesh. Now, there are a lot of desires of the flesh that are actually not lustful in that sense, and they're not sinful in that sense. Going to opera and loving opera, nothing wrong in it, but it can be a desire of the flesh. Now, a lot of Christians are living today to do nothing in the world but satisfy the desires of the flesh. Now, they've attempted to improve their desires, but they have no love for the Word of God. They have no love really for the gospel. They have no real love for walking in the Spirit. The word lust here has an evil connotation. It doesn't really have that in the Greek. Paul says there are a lot of desires of the flesh that are not evil in and of themselves, but they can take the place of that which is spiritual. Now, I know a great many Christians that get wrapped up in a hobby, and the hobby takes them away from the Word of God. And I know some Christians that spend a lot of time worshiping before that little idiot box that we call TV. Now, don't misunderstand. I look at TV, and I'm not under any law that you can't see TV. I think the news is very good, very biased, too, and you only get the liberal viewpoint in most places. And my feeling is that that is good. Some of the travelogues are quite fine. And every now and then a good old Western, you know. But may I say to you, you must understand that's a desire of the flesh. And if that's taking you away from spiritual things, then it's wrong. Now, will you listen to him? We're coming to verse 17. For the flesh... And I'm going to change this word, lusteth, here, because it's a very strong word. For the flesh warreth against the spirit, and the spirit warreth against the flesh. And these are contrary, and the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. That is, the things that the old nature wanted to do. And this is very, friends, very important to see. In fact, I would say it's all important to see at this particular point here. Now, we have here, "...the flesh warreth against the Spirit, and the Spirit warreth against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would." Now, a believer has a new nature... That's what our Lord meant when he said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And the believer has that old nature of the flesh, and you don't get rid of it. The idea today you can get rid of that old nature, tragic mistake. And I think that probably the greatest deception of the folk who think they've got rid of the old nature is that they haven't got rid of the old nature. And to be in that condition is a bad way. John says in his epistle, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That means if your truth's not in you, then there's no vacuum there. It must be a liar. And therefore, that puts that perfect individual in a pretty bad situation. The Word of God says he's a liar. And that is not very nice, but I didn't say it. 
Now, will you notice what we have here? For this is a tremendous statement. You and I have two natures. That's what Paul is describing in the last part of Romans. It was his experience, too. And I'm confident it's been the experience of many believers. The flesh warreth against the spirit, and the spirit warreth against the flesh. So that you cannot do the things that you would. That's new nature. It rebels against the old nature. These are contrary. They're warring one against the other. Have you experienced that in your own life? Well, there is a song that we sing. It's, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Wonderful hymn. Well, it has in the last stanza, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Now, someone came along after this song was written, and they said, that's not my condition. I want to change that. And it's been changed. You'll find it, I understand, in some hymn books. Prone to worship, Lord, I feel it. Prone to love the God I serve. Now, which is true? I'd like to ask you right now, which is true? Is it prone to wander, Lord, I feel it? Prone to leave the God I love? Or is it prone to worship, Lord, I feel it? Prone to love the God I serve? Well, both are true. (laughs) Both are true. I've got a nature that's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that old nature, I tell you, there are times it wants to wander. You know anything about that? Then I've got a new nature, too, and it's prone to worship. Lord, I feel it. There are times when I'm just sometimes riding along in the car. I just cry out to him. If I'm alone, I just cry out, Oh, Lord, how wonderful you are, and I love you. And I worship you. That's my new nature when that takes place. That old nature never gets around to that. And prone to love the God I serve. There are times when I can get far from him. And that's the old nature. Now, this is the condition of believers. Now, this idea today that I hear people say, well, I can't tell whether I'm walking in the Spirit or not. Yes, you can. Don't kid yourself about this, friends. Paul has spelled it out here so you can never miss it. He says, but if ye be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. That is, the Holy Spirit of God brings you to a higher plane. Why? Because here's what the flesh does now. The old nature does these things, and the law was given to curb the old nature. Will you notice this? Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And, oh, it's a bad list here. I'll give it to you as I have worked it out. There are those that are known as sensual sins. The first one, adulterous, probably not in the better manuscripts, but you get to it down here in another word or two. Fornication means prostitution, uncleanness. And that is sexual, of course. These are sensual sins, pornography, all of that, lasciviousness. That means brutal, sadistic. 
There's a great deal of that abounding today, sensual sins. This is what the flesh does. Then there are religious sins. Oh, the flesh is religious. Idolatry, that's worship idols. And there are a great many folk can worship other things than just an idol. It can be, well, let me come back. That little old idiot box is sure become an idol for a lot of folk today. A lot of people worship money. These are things. And witchcraft, the Greek word is pharmakeia. And pharmakeia, we get our word pharmacy from that. Well, we call them drugstores back where I came from, drugstores. The word is drugs, and that's used in religion. It was used in all the heathen religions, and these are religious sins, and there are a great many using them today. Then there are social sins. Hatred, that's enmity, variance, that's strife. And the word is actually Eris, the goddess of strife. Emulations means rivalry, jealousy. And wrath is thumoi, that's heat, wrath, oh, hot temper. And strife means factions and little cliques. Do you have little cliques in your church today or in your Christian circles? May I say that's probably hurting the church today, the organized church, as much as anything. Then seditions, that means divisions again. This group divides up and becomes two groups. Why? Because they can't get along. Heresies means parties and sects. That's the different groups. Envyings, and we understand that. And I think murders is probably not in the best manuscripts because I think of the fact that it's included in all of this. Hatred leads to murder. And the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. And you see the words here, get all of us. Drunkenness, these are personal sins. And revelings, these are personal sins. And you can see how this is divided. Now, this ugly brood is what the flesh does. And he doesn't mention all of them. And he says, such like. And that means that there are a lot of others that he could have mentioned, but didn't. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do, and the word is practice, it's continuous action, that live in these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And I can give the illustration our Lord gave. The prodigal son got down in the pig pen, but he didn't stay in the pig pen. The only ones that stay in pig pens are pigs. If a son gets down there, he's going to be very unhappy. And if you can live in sin, you're in a dangerous position, my friend. It just simply means you're probably not a child of God, because no child of God can be satisfied in sin at all. And you'll have to come out of it. Oh, I have letter here after letter. I've shared several of them with you. Just the other day, this lady, and I think she's a real born-again person, almost got caught as a widow meeting a married man. And they found out that they had a love for each other. I don't question that. I told her to jump out of that situation like jumping out of a burning building. That sort of thing can drag you down to hell, my friend, to live in a thing like that. And there's too much of that today. And my friend, believers can't get by with it. If you get by with it, you're not his children. He only paddles his own children. My friends, we will get right down to where the rubber meets the road. Right down where your shoe leather touches the sidewalk. 
right down to the nitty-gritty today. We're going to see what does it mean to walk in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit is the principle. The Christian life is not a balloon ascension where you have some great overpowering experience and you soar to the heights. It's a daily walk. And a walk is one of the most, well, I would say rather monotonous things. It's a matter of putting one foot ahead of the other, as we're going to see here just a little later. But it's all important that we learn to walk in the Spirit. Now he's making it very clear what the works of the flesh are. We saw that's an ugly brood, a list of sensual sins, religious sins, social sins, and personal sins. And it's not a very attractive list. Now, if you go through that and find out that there is enmity in your heart today, hatred for another believer, you are living in the flesh. I mean, let's face it. There's no use beating around the bush. You can know whether you're living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, or living in the flesh. And you know whether you're joined to a little sect or a little clique and that you judge everybody else outside of that clique, but everybody in the clique's perfect, or you think they are anyway. At least you don't say it to their face. And then are you filled with envyings? That's the work of the flesh. That's what this old natural man does. Now, having said that, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. And I want you to notice the contrast that we have here. Works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. Now, works of the flesh are what you do. And the Ten Commandments was given, as you can see, to control the flesh. But now, the Christian life is to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Very interesting thing about fruit. The Lord Jesus talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and you have that in the 15th of the Gospel of John. He said that without him we could do nothing, (laughs) and that fruit is what he wants. He wanted fruit and more fruit and much fruit. And his desire is that we bring forth the good seed. You remember in the parable he gave, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Now, he'd like to get us up where we could really be a fruit-bearing tree for him, or I should say a branch in the vine. And a bunch of grapes here, ooh, it has quite a few kinds of fruit that are here. Now, the Lord Jesus had a great deal to say about the fruit of the Spirit. That is what he meant in John 15. That's what he's talking about. Fruit, he says. And the fruit is produced by the Lord Jesus using the Spirit of God to produce fruit in our lives. He wants to live his life through us. That's the reason I keep saying that you are never asked to live the Christian life. You're asked to let him live it through you. And the reason is we can't. This old nature of ours can't produce it. And the interesting thing is, Paul makes it clear in the seventh of Romans, the new nature has no power. He said, the will is present with me, but how to perform it I find not. And believe me, that's the problem with many of us. How do you do it? This is not a do-it-yourself thing, but... How am I going to let the Spirit of God produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Now, the very interesting thing about fruit is that, and I use the illustration always of my ranch. I have a ranch up here in Pasadena. 
It's not what you call a big ranch. It's 72 feet wide, goes back about 123 feet, I guess. And my house where I live was right in the middle of it. And I have a nice nectarine tree out in front, and believe me, it really produces fruit. And then I have some orange trees, and they do well. I have some avocado trees, they don't do so well. And I have some guava bushes, and they do well. And I have a plum tree, and I have an apricot tree. You can see I'm quite a rancher. Four avocado trees, I have three orange trees, and I'm really in the ranching business. Now, one of the things I enjoy is going out and looking at my trees. Oh, I have a lemon tree, too. And there's never a period during the year here in California that I do not have fruit on some tree. Sometimes there'll be a few avocados, a lot of times oranges, and a lot of times lemons, and nectarines, and plums, and apricots, always something. And I've observed that fruit is produced by the tree, not by effort. I just don't think, as far as I can tell, the branches get together and somehow or another that they, you know, gang up and say, now let's all of us work pretty hard and see what we can do for this fellow McGee here, because he likes fruit. And I do enjoy fruit. And it's wonderful. I have some friends that send me apples each year at Christmas time, and some send me oranges, and then during the year, other kinds of fruit. And it's all delicious. I love fruit. And so these limbs, as far as I can tell, they bear fruit. They never get together. They just open up the branches there to the sunshine and to the rain, and they produce it. (laughs) They'll bloom, and then the little fruit's green, and it grows, and it becomes ripe. And that's the way it does it. Now, as far as I know, those limbs never leave the trunk of the tree either. As far as I can tell, that night, I know back New Year's Eve, I looked out around 12 o'clock, and the branches were still on the trees. I don't think they'd get down and run around. But the problem with us is, it's like this, when we offer our sacrifice to God ourselves as a living sacrifice, when the altar gets hot, I crawl off of it. And maybe you do that. And we are to abide in Christ if we are to produce fruit, we're told. The Lord Jesus now put it that way. Now, Paul is going to put it right down where you and I can get it, by the way. The fruit is produced by yielding, you see. Yielding to the sweet influences that are about us. And what is the sweet influence about us? Well, not this world. Well, it's the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And the Holy Spirit wants to produce the fruit. And it's called the fruit of the Spirit. And you notice it doesn't say our love, joy, peace. It's is love. Now, we can argue about the grammar, but it happens to be singular in the Greek, which would indicate that love is the fruit. And from it stems all other fruit, by the way. Love is primary. Without it, Paul said, for instance, that's the purpose of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 wasn't ever intended to be taken out of the Bible and put in a beautiful frame and put on the wall in somebody's house. It belongs to the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul says there that the gifts are not to be exercised except by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And with love goes all the other fruits of the Spirit. You can't exercise a gift 
without doing it by the fruit of the Spirit. And love is all important. Why, he says, if you could even give your body to be burned, give everything you got, and you haven't loved, you're a zero. You're nothing. You're a goose egg with a rib rubbed off of it. That's nothing. My friend, we need to recognize that today. And he makes it very clear that no gift is to be exercised by itself. And he says, love never seeks its own. (laughs) It's always doing it for others. And a gift is to be always exercised in the church. It's a manifestation of the Spirit to all believers. All believers have a gift, and it's to be exercised for profit. That is, for the benefit of the body of believers. My eye operates for the benefit of the rest of my body. It gets the rest of my body around. And it's pretty important, you see. You can't imagine the eyes walking out on me and saying, Look, we're like looking around. Your feet get tired, and so we're going to take off. It never does it that way. And we need to recognize that no gift apart from the fruit of the Spirit is to be exercised. So this is very important here. And this is the kind of fruit the Lord Jesus was talking about in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. That is, there's no law that can produce these. And there's no law against them, and there's no law to produce them. You can't do any of these by your own effort. Have you ever tried being meek, for instance? Why, if you even tried being meek and accomplished it, well, you'd be proud that you became meek, and then you'd lose your meekness, you see, your humility. Now, let's look at these fruits, because they're lovely. Oh, this is the thing we ought to find in believers. I used to hear the late Dr. Jim McGinley say, I'm not to judge you. But I'm a fruit inspector, and I have a right to come around and look at the fruit. (laughs) Are you producing any in your life? And now, will you notice there's fruit of the Spirit? The first three are inward, love, joy, and peace. The next three are manward, out to others. And the last three are to Godward. They look up. So what you really have here is a triangle. You are at one corner of the triangle at the bottom, and the other person is at the other corner, and then up above is God at the other corner of the triangle. If I could draw you a picture, that's the way I'd draw it here. And I have these now listed like this, love, joy, and peace. Now, love and joy ought to be in your heart and life. And friends, if there's sensual sins in your life, You'll never know what real love is. There's a lot of these young folk today that know a great deal about sex, but they know nothing about love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. And I think it's that kind of love that God will actually give a husband for his wife and a wife for a husband. I don't think any two can love like two Christians can love. My, how they can love each other. And how wonderful it is. I never shall forget the night I proposed to my wife, and she didn't accept then. But when she did, we just had prayer and dedicated our lives. I told her, I said, I'm a preacher that speaks out very plainly, and I may get in trouble, and someday we may find ourselves out on the street. And I never shall forget. She says, well, I'll just beat the drum for you if you have to get out on the street. 
May I say to you, that went to a higher place and then when we lost our first little one. And I didn't want the doctor to tell her. I went in and told her. And when I told her about it, well, we just wept there together, but then we prayed, you know. I don't know. There's something that you get like that. And then there's joy. And the Lord Jesus came that you can have fun. I wish we had more fun time in the church today. The world outside has what they call, you know, the happy hour in these cocktail parlors. And they don't look happy to me when they go in. They sure are not happy looking when they come out. They're a bunch of sots, if you please. And that's not joy. John says, these things we write unto you, that your joy might be full. Boy, that you might really enjoy life. Are you really living it up today, friend? I hope you are as a believer. And then peace. That's the peace of God. And religion can never give this to you. Only Christ can give you peace. And that's that deep down peace. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's some others. Notice here, long-suffering, patient is the word, long-tempered. Oh, here's where I need a little help, by the way. And only the Spirit of God can do it. I found out I can't do it. And gentleness means kindness. And goodness here means kind but firm. And faith here means faithfulness. If you're a child of God, you're going to be faithful. If you're married, you'll be faithful to your husband or wife. If you're a Christian, you're going to be faithful to your job, your boss. If you are a church member, you're going to be faithful to your church. And you're going to be faithful wherever you are. And then there's meekness. And that doesn't mean mildness. The two men that were meek was Moses and the Lord Jesus. Look at Moses coming down from that mountain and what he said to his brother Aaron and what he did. That doesn't look like meekness, but he was. And the Lord Jesus, he ran the money changers out of the temple, but he's meek. Meekness is not mildness, and it's not weakness. Meekness means that you'll do God's will and yield your will to the will of God. And these are Godward. And then there's temperance and self-control. And that's something we need, a poise, a Christian poise that is needed by so many today. Now will you notice what he says here? And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. When? Well, they reckon that when Christ died, they died. And they yield themselves on that basis, as Paul puts it in Romans. Now here we have in verse 25 the very key to it all. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now a professor in a theological seminary, called my attention to this several years ago. And it's meant a great deal to me. Back in verse 16, it's walk in the Spirit. That word is actually peripateo. But in verse 25, it's a different word. And the word here, actually, it's stoiko. Stoiko man is the Greek word here. And that means that which is basic and elemental. It means to proceed or to step in order. In other words, this is a different word from the word walk in verse 16. There we're given the principle of walk. It means to learn to walk here. Now, just as we learn to walk physically by the trial and error method, we're to begin to walk by the Spirit. It's a learning process. Now, let me illustrate that with a very ridiculous illustration, if I might do that. 
What is walking? Well, walking is putting one foot in front of another. You've heard the story about the knock-kneed girl that one knee said to the other, and if you let me by this time, I'll let you by next time. That's walking, putting one foot in front of another. Now, this means to learn to walk. How did you learn to walk, by the way? <laughs> Were you given a lecture, or did you go to a school and, and take a course in learning to walk? Well, my little grandson, he was with us in the summer when he was just about 16, 17 months old. He was just standing and wobbling along. And I didn't put him in his high chair and said, Now, look here, young fellow, I want to give you my lecture on learning to walk. And I told him about the physical mechanism of the foot. And then I gave him the psychology of walking. And then I told him all about the sociological implications of walking. And then he lifted the top of his high chair and got down and walked off. Is that the way it happened? No, my friend, that's not the way you learn to walk. Why well, you learn to walk by trial and error. The little fella, you know, he fell down. Man, he had a big nut on his forehead where he fell. And he fell many times. Then when we brought him out here not long ago, do you know he could just walk right on off? And he just did it by learning. Just by doing it. Now, that's the way we are to learn to walk in the Spirit, trial and error. I know people that have been to Keswick conferences, spiritual life conferences, Bible conferences, and they've got notebooks filled with notes on the Christian life, how to live it. And still they're not living it. What's the problem? You're to learn to walk in the Spirit. And that means you're to start out now. Say, I'm going to walk in the Spirit now going to depend on the Spirit of God to produce the fruits in my life. Somebody says, I think I'll fall down. I have news for you. You are going to fall down. Oh, that'll hurt. Sure, it's going to hurt. How many times? I don't know. I'm still falling. <laughs> May I say to you, that's the way you're going to walk in the Spirit, and that's the only way you're going to walk in the Spirit is just to get down and do it yourself. Now, this is a do-it-yourself. You've got to do your own thing. You, my friend, need to step out today and lean upon the Spirit of God. Yield yourself. It's an act of the will. And start out. And I try to start out every day and say, Lord, I can't do it today by myself. But you can, and I want you to do it through me. And I find out sometimes I don't get ten blocks from home. Some woman cuts in ahead of me in one of these little Volkswagens. And I've been so nice and sweet up to then and I tell you, I drive up by the side of her as I did one woman. I told her what she'd done. And she told me right back. And you know, it wasn't very nice. And when she drove off, I thought, my, I sure fell on my face. What? Let's get up and start over again. Why not do that? Let us not be desirous of vain glory. You're not going to be a wonderful saint of God. I have news for you. We never become wonderful saints of God. He's wonderful. Oh, my friend, he is wonderful. He's worthy of our worship. Let us get down like little babies and start out and let's learn to walk today. That's what he wants us to do, provoking one another. That is encouraging one another, in envying one another. No, not doing that. We are not to do that, my friend. We are to get down and walk in the Spirit today. May God help us in this tremendous enterprise.